Welcome to Catalyst Church. My name is Sue Sweeney, and I'm part of the teaching team here at Catalyst. Um, I want to begin this morning by welcoming those of you who are guests with us today. All that we ask of you while you're with us for this next hour is that you be open to hear from God. We believe God has brought all of us to be here today, and if we're open, God will speak to us. So, I spent um, about eight years teaching high school in the DFW area. One year, I was teaching ninth grade world geography, and I had a student named Michael. Michael wasn't really into school, to say the least. By the time he first crossed the threshold of my classroom, it was already his second attempt at world geography. All of his older brothers who had come through our school had already dropped out before the end of their senior year, and Michael seemed determined to follow in his brother's footsteps. He showed up in class barely enough to keep himself out of truancy court. When he did show up to class, he sat languidly in his desk with his arms and legs hanging out to all sides, and he refused to do any work. When I protested, he pretended to work for a while and then would lay his head on his desk and fall asleep. So I told him sternly that I would not tolerate this behavior. I reviewed the rules, I went over the requirements, and explained the consequences for not doing what I asked. There would be phone calls home, detentions, referrals to the principal's office, etc. all this potentially resulting in failing world geography for a second time. And Michael couldn't care less. None of these threats were the least bit meaningful to him. So I changed tactics and tried to explain to him why he was missing out on a great opportunity. He would always look at me blankly while I spoke, and when I finished, he would return to napping at his desk. Eventually, I gave up. As long as I left him alone, he was happy to keep to himself and snooze the class period away. And since he really wasn't bothering anyone, I just let him sleep. A couple of months later, he was sent to alternative school for selling drugs out of his backpack in the hallway. And after a few months away, he returned to school and got in trouble again, and then we didn't really see him anymore after that. Unfortunately, Michael is not an unusual case. I've had a lot of students like him over the years. Anyone who was taught in one of our secondary schools in the area has had at least a few or more Michaels in their classroom every year. We have thousands of Michaels in our DFW schools struggling and failing. Chronically failing students is a problem so pervasive and difficult that often teachers and administrators feel powerless in solving it. So they're always looking for the miracle solution that they just haven't tried yet. As a result, millions of dollars and work hours have gone toward public and private policies, programs, and initiatives which promise to improve the academic achievement of struggling students. And for teachers, it seems like barely a school year passes before their district invests tons of money into another magic bullet solution that seems to make things worse instead of better. So in education, we call this initiative fatigue which describes the exhaustion teachers feel year after year as they experience a seemingly endless onslaught of programs that overpromise and underdeliver. And you may not be an educator, but maybe in your profession or your personal life, you see programs which promise to solve everyone's problems, the magic bullet solution, only the results are not as satisfactory as you would hope. And maybe personally, you've tried out a program which promised to make you smarter or better looking or more efficient or more popular, only to abandon it when the results were not as satisfactory as you'd hoped. And religion is like this too. It's all about improvement. 
You walk into any Christian bookstore and you can find a whole section of religious self-improvement, how to pray better, how to be a better friend, spouse, or parent, as if we're all just one 17-step program away from being a more perfect version of ourselves. But it's a game we just can't win. We get bogged down in step 12 of 17 and then we give up and move on to something else. A couple of weeks ago, Debbie Reese shared with us about the lead vest of responsibilities and expectations we place on ourselves, all the things that burden us and weigh us down. We seek out these programs, futilely hoping that they will lift this lead vest off our chest, but the weight never really disappears. This vest never goes away because it's rooted in sin. We cannot remove it on our own, no matter how hard we try, no matter how closely we follow the rules. Only the power of the Holy Spirit can release this burden from us. Today we're going to talk about how resurrection changes everything for us. Catalyst, the good news is, is that we're not on our own. We don't have to rely on an initiative or a program to see transformation in our lives or the lives of others. The resurrection of Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to help us become the people that we were meant to be. The exact same power that brought Jesus out of the grave can also live in us. Will you stand with me? As we sing this next song, let's take time to reflect on how wonderful it is that the burden of solving all our problems does not rest entirely on our own shoulders. Our series this summer is called Believe, and so we're exploring the Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest statements about what Christians believe. Every week this summer, we've worked through the Apostles' Creed statement by statement. We ask why believing these words are still relevant. How does this belief shape us as a church and us as individuals today? We say these beliefs together as a church. And it's okay if you don't fully understand them or even believe them. It's better to think of these beliefs as the goal of our faith. This morning, we focus on the resurrection. So, let's revisit the details about the account of Jesus' death and resurrection in the Bible. And this is what we know. Jesus was crucified sometime around 30 A.D. under Pontius Pilate. He was buried in a tomb with a large stone rolled in front of it. Historians agree that this is consistent with common burial practices during this time, no big deal. Then, the first century Christians made a pretty awesome claim that 36 hours later, on a Sunday morning, some women who were followers of Jesus went to check on the tomb and saw that the big stone out front was rolled away and the tomb was empty. The body was nowhere in sight. Jesus was no longer a dead body in a tomb. He then starts actually showing up to his disciples alive, but they don't recognize him. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we say, The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So what a thing to say, right? I mean, Jesus died and went full zombie on everyone and then came back to life. And if that's not enough, he ascended up into the sky and now sits right next to the God of the universe. And so over the years, some have found this all a bit hard to believe. Maybe Jesus didn't actually die and come back to life. Maybe it's just an imaginative way of saying Jesus lived on in the hearts and minds of the early Christians. But the early Christians very literally said that Jesus was dead and then he wasn't dead anymore. 
According to ancient Jewish tradition, referenced throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Exodus and carrying on throughout the books of Leviticus and Numbers, was a belief that one day the apparently endless cycle of seven-day weeks would come to an end. That one day after the Sabbath, instead of another first day of the week, an eighth day would dawn. Then all of God's promises would be fulfilled. The kingdom of God would come and prevail over the whole earth. Christians believed and still believe, even though we often forget it, that this new day dawned with the resurrection of Jesus. And several New Testament writers refer to Jesus as the second Adam. Where the first Adam was introduced sin and death into the world in the beginning, Jesus, the second Adam, brings forgiveness and life in the resurrection. Today, we believe that God's promises were fulfilled with the death and resurrection of Jesus. We believe that God's kingdom of peace and justice and love has come into our world. But we also acknowledge that we live in a world that is still full of violence, injustice, and hatred. So God's kingdom is already here, and at the same time, not quite here in its fullness yet. And the early Christians understood this. They proclaimed that Jesus was Lord, but they also had to recognize the emperor of Rome as kind of a Lord too, in a limited way. And they said that God is their father, but they also lived within their earthly families as well. Right now, the first world of Adam is still here, and tomorrow is just a regular Monday. But tomorrow is also a new world, the world that began on Resurrection Sunday, the eighth day, the world of the new Adam. So for Jesus' followers, for eighth-day people, tomorrow is a day of new creation too. So we have a choice to be two different kinds of people. We can live like the first, we can live like the second Adam, Jesus, or we can live like the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. We can be a person driven and controlled by our basic human natures, driven by the desires of our fleshly bodies. We can try to solve all the problems on our own and live our lives in endless seven-day cycles, ultimately not really getting anywhere. The way of the first Adam means that we wear that lead vest of sin and it only leads us toward resentment and then eventually injustice, hatred, and violence. Or we can be a person driven by the power of God's creation. We can change from the inside out. But we find ourselves trying to change from the outside in. We create rules and regulations on ourselves and others. We impose programs and initiatives and plans, and all we do is just add layers to the lead vest. So what is the way to become a person of God's creation? How might we live our lives in the miraculous resurrection of Jesus? How can we live like tomorrow is the eighth day of a new creation instead of just a Monday. Please turn in your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 17. If you picked up one of your Bibles off the back table back there, it's on page 679. Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Church of Rome, which is the capital of the empire. The church in Rome was ethnically divided between Jews, God's chosen people, and Gentiles, which is everyone else. Paul spends the first four chapters of the book demonstrating that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Everyone is in the same boat. We're all sinners. We're all children of the first Adam. In chapters 5 through 7, 
Paul demonstrates the difference between the first Adam and Jesus, the second Adam. He shows us how Jesus' faithfulness overcomes the unfaithfulness of the first Adam. He observes that if we live like Adam, then we are governed by the flesh. We are limited to solving big problems with only what we can muster within ourselves apart from God. We try to make changes from the outside in, but Paul presents an alternative. In Jesus, the second Adam, we can be transformed from the inside out. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can live as eighth-day people. Paul describes what a people of the resurrection look like. We read along with me. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul tells us that we are not in the flesh, but we are in the Spirit. When the Spirit is within us, we live out God's promises to the world. We live transformed lives where we are able to work together to tackle the big problems. With the acceptance of the Holy Spirit, we usher in God's peace and justice and love to a broken world of people who desperately, desperately need it. It's not up to us. There is no exhaustion or burnout because we're not doing all the work. When we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out, there are no lead vests to wear. The Holy Spirit sets us free. The Jewish people of the Old Testament had the law given to them by Moses, and the law matters, but it's not enough to help make us into the image of God. The law by itself, regulations and guidelines are ultimately hopeless in the struggle against our fleshly first Adam nature. Paul explains that this way is death. Instead, Catalyst, we are called to a life of peace and flourishing through the Holy Spirit. And what is this Spirit? This Spirit is the exact same miraculous power that brought Jesus back from the dead to fulfill the promises of God. Through living our lives in the Spirit instead of the flesh, we have resurrection power to fulfill God's promises here on earth, in this world, every day, not just on Sunday, but on Monday too. We become eighth-day people. Just like J.R. talked about last week, despite our differences, we're all united in the Spirit, 
headed in the same direction. We don't need programs and initiatives to transform us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is accept the power of this Spirit into our lives. So how do we accept the Holy Spirit and allow this transformation to take place? What's the first step? The transformative power of the resurrection often comes when we take this time to sit back, watch, and wait. Let me give you an example. One of the junior highs uh, I work with has a lot of students who struggle with behavior and academic problems. The students at this school are often at the bottom when it comes to state standardized test scores. The school population is highly mobile and impoverished. The students are often argumentative and combative with adults. This year, after the school year had already started, this junior high school hired a new instructional coach. She, like all our instructional coaches, dedicated her time and effort to helping teachers improve instruction and working directly with the students who are struggling to need academic support. What was a little bit different about this coach was that she was determined to take on the most difficult students in the school right from the start. These were students who were struggling academically and were constantly disrupting class with their bad behavior. These were students whom no teacher could seem to tolerate. Instead of walking straight up to these students and going over the rules and regulations and revisiting the consequences for their bad behavior, instead of imposing a plan or initiative on them, she tried a different method. She sat back for a while and watched these students every day while they ate lunch in the cafeteria. She saw the students they sat and ate with. She saw who their friends were and how they interacted with others. She took time to notice them. She took time to see who they really were beyond their academic and behavior struggles. She took time to pay attention to what was important to them. And then she made her move. She started with the friends. She started getting to know them and inviting them to her tutoring sessions. And when they came the first time, she made it seem like her tutoring sessions were about the most fun they could ever have at school. Then when they came again, they got down to work. And once she won all the friends over, once she had developed those positive relationships, the most difficult students started to realize they wanted to be a part of her tutoring sessions as well. And the principals were blown away by the progress she made with these students. These were kids that no one else had seemed to be able to reach. And at the end of the year, the state test results came back. And I would love to say that all these students just blew the test out of the water, but they didn't. However, there was some improvement. And some really difficult students had a more productive year than they'd had in a very long time. And they finally felt like they had someone at school who really cared about them and liked them for who they were. Maybe what this instructional coach did was just a drop in the bucket. She helped about a dozen or so students do a little better than they would have otherwise. And maybe it doesn't matter much in the larger scheme of things. Thousands of students across Texas, millions across the United States are still struggling in school. It may not have mattered much when the state test scores came back, but it mattered to those kids. What if, like this instructional coach, instead of rushing in with our own solutions to problems, instead of pointing others again to the rules, the guidelines, and regulations, we took time to sit back, wait, and notice? What if we took the time to allow the Holy Spirit to help us see in someone what we didn't see before? What if we made space in our lives for relationships to develop first? Doing this would allow the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out instead of trying to change ourselves from the outside in.
What if instead of being taskmasters and the implementers of 17-step plans and pretending that living by the letter of God's law is enough, we instead took time to sit back, wait, and notice the gentle nudging of the Holy Spirit? What if we truly believed that Jesus suffered greatly in a world of violence and justice and hatred through his brutal crucifixion and after three days rose from the dead with the transformative power of the Holy Spirit and triumphed over it all in peace and justice and love? What if we live like tomorrow was the eighth day, the dawn of a new creation? Catalyst, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and this makes us eighth-day people. Eighth-day people trust God's Holy Spirit, not programs. Eighth-day people take time to wait and notice. Eighth-day people trust that suffering and evil aren't the last word. If you're willing to embark on a journey toward acceptance of the transformative resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, then we invite you to come to this communion table this morning. Jesus ate this meal on the night before his crucifixion. Knowing he would suffer tremendous violence and justice and hatred in the coming hours, but ultimately triumph over it all when the Holy Spirit would bring him back to life, he took the bread at this meal, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Catalyst, we proclaim the death and resurrection of the Lord and the fulfillment of God's promises. Every week during this series, before we approach this communion table, we say the Apostles' Creed together. After that, I'll pray for us, and as you're ready, you're welcome to receive and take communion. Will you please stand and say the creed with me? We'll say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Father Almighty, and creator of heaven and earth. You have gathered us here today to receive this good news of the resurrection of your son Jesus. When you raised him from the dead by the power of your Holy Spirit, this was not just a historical event, but the beginning of a new creation, one you now invite us to join. We live in a world of false hopes, of endless self-improvement programs, and we are tired. We confess our skepticism that anything could actually be new. But you have shown us this morning that you offer not another program, but your very spirit to bring resurrection in our lives. We approach your table this morning 
following in the footsteps of your son Jesus, we receive wafers and juice and pray that by your grace they become a spiritual food for us, that they help us to wait and notice how your spirit is at work. Lord, make us eighth-day people. Make us your people. Bind us together as one body in the power of your spirit. We pray and approach your table in the resurrected name of your son, Jesus.